Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and His Kingdom. So we are going to look at a biblical text today, as we do. It'd be a good day to have something in front of you if you're into that. So if you brought a Bible or you have a device that you use to look at the Bible, you can take those out at this time. If you'd like to have one in front of you but don't, uh, you can raise your hand. It looks like Harry will happily hand you one if you wish. So raise your hand if you want Harry to hand you a Bible. I didn't even, I forgot to ask someone to hand them out and he just jumped on it because he's just on top of that. So that's awesome. Way to go. Okay. Um, If you are... If you're going to have something in front of you, go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 69. Before I read the passage, I will say a few things to set the table. If you are not familiar with the Gospels of the Bible, they are four accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have been working through Matthew's Gospel for a little while. We are near the end. And uh, so Jesus in Matthew's gospel, goes around mostly in the area of Galilee and, you know, proclaims that the kingdom is at hand, does miracles, teaches people how to be faithful to God, and so on. And then at one point, they start, he and his disciples start to make their way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is sort of the, the holy city, the religious center of this place and this time, and uh, it's a significant place, and they're going there for the Passover And so, uh, because that's what you do. And on the way to Jerusalem, he repeatedly tells his disciples, the 12 guys that are sort of most closely associating with him, he says, I'm going to be arrested and crucified, and on the third day, I'm going to be raised when we get to Jerusalem. So he's telling them ahead of time what's going to happen. And then they get to Jerusalem, and uh, the religious authorities are trying to get rid of Jesus because they object to some things he's saying and doing. And uh, ultimately, Judas gives them the opportunity to get rid of Jesus by offering to essentially tell them where and when they can arrest him, where they can come and take him away, um, bandit style, I guess, with swords and stuff. And so he, he does that for 30 pieces of silver. He, he receives 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus in that way. That happens. Uh, they're in the garden, or rather, before that happens, Uh, We have the Last Supper that most of us are probably familiar with. Jesus reveals to his disciples that one of them is going to betray him and that the rest of them are going to abandon him. And they're all shocked by this. And Peter says, even if everyone else abandons you, I will definitely not abandon you, even if it costs me my life. And Jesus tells him, actually, before the rooster crows tonight, in other words, less than 12 hours from now, you're going to have denied me three times. Then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, as uh, many of you are familiar with, and uh, the various armed men come to arrest Jesus because Judas has betrayed him, and Peter is ready to fight to the death. Chris talked about this with us last week. Peter's ready to fight to the death. He has a sword. He cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus heals the guy's ear, tells him to chill. This isn't the way to do it. But, you know, he's ready to stand by Jesus boldly, uh, even if it means fighting to the death, right? But that's not the way things play out, and Jesus is taken into custody, and he begins being brought before uh, the authorities of various sorts. And so the passage I'm going to read you today falls in between 
two confrontations between Jesus and different high-level authorities of his day. And so in the passage before the one I'm going to read you, he is before the high priest, who is the highest religious authority of his day. So it's the pope, basically, of this time and place. And he bears a faithful, Jesus bears a faithful witness to God and to the truth and who he is and so forth, even though uh, this is a lofty, uh, in theory, uh, impressive, scary person. And then in the passage after the one that we're looking at, he's going to be brought before Pilate, who is the secular authority. He's the, essentially the governor of this region at this time. And so, you know, the, imagine the governor of our state if the governor could just have you killed because he felt like it. So, uh, and again, boldly bears witness, we find, to the truth uh, of God and of who he is and all this stuff. Uh, and so Jesus is confronting the authorities and being faithful to God. But in between this, you know, those two passages are, it's fair to say, focused on Jesus. He is driving the story forward. In the passage I'm going to read you today, which falls in between those two confrontations, the focus is really not on Jesus per se. The focus is on mostly Peter and Judas, two of the 12 who played a role in what's happening. So I will read, um, starting Matthew 26, 69, I'm going to go through 27, 10. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know the man. At that moment, the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said, Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. By the chief, but the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since they are blood money. After conferring together, they used them to buy the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the, pro, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one on whom a price had been set, on whom some of the people of Israel had set a price, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. So in this passage, um, what I want to focus on is what I see as three parties that we read about who imagine themselves one way and find themselves acting another way. And the first is Peter. Uh, the second is going to be Judas, the third is going to be the chief priests. And so for Peter, uh, one thing I want to start out by saying, we find that uh, Peter is out of his element. In a number of ways, 
the text kind of hints at, it reminds us that Peter and Jesus and many of the other disciples are country boys. They're from Galilee. Galilee is where people farm and fish and do the stuff that people do, uh, not in the major cities, but elsewhere, in, in the sticks or whatever. And this is where they're from. They're country boys. And like today, right, today where you are, if you live in a major city, if you live out in a less densely populated area where people farm and, and so forth, uh, that's going to generally imply a different identity, different values, different voting usually, uh, different understandings of yourself and of the other group, right? Because people in the city, as a general rule, might look on people from the country as either less educated, less sophisticated, somehow uh, less impressive, and vice versa. The people in the country might have, you know, oh, those elitists in the city, blah, 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 right? They're, this is how we think of things today. This is more or less how people thought of things in the time of Jesus as well. The people in the city looked down on those backward people from the country who barely know how to read and so on. And so um, at one point in Acts, people are impressed with John and Peter because they are unlettered men. In other words, they probably couldn't read. Uh, it's amazing that they're saying these profound things, these bumpkins. And so we see in Jerusalem here, you know, there's these little comments. You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and then most clearly, you also are one of them because your accent betrays you. Peter speaks with the ancient equivalent of a drawl. He talks like a country boy. Jesus and Peter talked uh, the way I imagine, you know, as the stereotypical Alabaman speaks. This is how they sounded to the people in Jerusalem. They're country boys. Peter's a country boy in the big city. He's out of his element. And this adds a level of discomfort to what's happening. And so some random person in this awkward, weird environment is saying, wait, you're one of those country boys too, aren't you? Yeah. And it's kind of, at first it sounds kind of casual. I like to imagine that it was just random. Like, hey, aren't you, uh, aren't you with one of the people that hung out with Jesus? And he's just like, oh, I don't want to talk about this right now. Leave me alone. I don't know what you're talking about. It doesn't, it seems so simple and like not that significant at first and then it starts to snowball right more and more people are coming and saying no wait yeah you are you you were with Jesus and Peter's like no no really I'm not <laughs> he's already started down that track right it just gets out of hand but I like to imagine it starts very small and as we said at the last supper Peter is insistent that he's going to stand with Jesus even if it means he dies. And at the garden, he's ready at this really obvious moment to stand with Jesus, but in a very subtle way. You know, his testing doesn't come in the confrontation with armed bandits and stuff. His testing comes in a really subtle way. It comes at a moment that's unexpected. It comes at a moment where he's not ready for it. And that's when he denies Jesus and he finds that he has done what he swore not very many hours ago he would never do. So Peter is surprising himself with his capacity to be unfaithful to Jesus. Where I relate to this is uh, in how, I am, how willing I am or how unwilling I am to talk to people about Jesus when the opportunity is in front of me. It's not quite the same thing. But, uh, you know, we, a lot of us, I think, are shaped by what's uh, sort of a culture that's common to young Christians these days 
where like we want to move away from the old way of doing evangelism that was very confrontational and oftentimes involved kind of a sales pitch, like a spiel about how do you, to, you know, give your testimony and tell, preach the you know, four spiritual laws or whatever, and that's supposed to lead someone to make a decision for Jesus as quickly as possible. And that feels inauthentic to a lot of us today, and the in-your-face thing feels kind of unnecessary. And so uh, I think a lot of younger folks, younger people who follow Jesus, millennials and such, you know, there's a common idea. Like, we don't really want to be like that. We want to be authentic. We want to be real. We don't want to force those conversations, and, and that's fine. But I find that kind of, for me and for a lot of other people, seems to slip into, like, I never want to say anything that makes anyone uncomfortable ever. I have heard a number of stories about people who, as far as they understood it, were living as a faithful witness to Jesus, loving people and stuff like that, and assuming people were getting the message, but never really said anything. And then had a coworker or a friend for years, and then were shocked to find out they don't know that I'm a Christian. I've heard a lot of stories like this. But I don't know. I mean, you know, number one, we're not always as amazingly wonderful at being like Jesus as we think, I suggest. And two, like people use words to learn stuff. Like you have to say something eventually or else how is anyone going to know? So that's not so much my problem. My problem uh, is once that cat is out of the bag because as soon as we get a few sentences into an introductory conversation and someone asks me what I do, I have to say, well, I'm a Bible scholar and there you go. Okay. So, so no one who knows me at all doesn't know that I'm a Christian, but I'm amazed with myself at how willing I am to get off that subject as quickly as possible when I realize it's going to be uncomfortable. The moment there's a hint that, you know, I'm at this party and I met someone and we are like three sentences into a conversation and they're like, oh, okay, Bible scholar. Uh, I could naturally talk about Jesus because it's come up. They're asking me questions. It's not a spiel. It's not forced. It's not aggressive. It's just like the most, you know, telling the truth in the most natural way possible. And yet somehow I'm just so sensitive to the fact that some people are uncomfortable about Jesus, uncomfortable about Jesus that I just want to either treat this as merely an object of study and talk about it that way instead of talking about Jesus as my Lord or ask them about themselves. And that's good. You know, I don't want it to just be about me saying what I want to say. But if it's coming up naturally, like, why wouldn't I want them to know about Jesus? I believe this is the most important thing in the world, that people know Jesus, that they find salvation in him. I think that people are in real trouble if they don't. That's, that's a big deal. That's, that's about the most important thing there is, in my opinion. And Yet, I find myself getting off that as quickly as possible when, it, when the moment sneaks up on me. It's one thing if you can psych yourself up, right? But if it's just like that moment just it pops up in conversation, I find myself shrinking back from that uh, as quickly as I can. And then I go, what is wrong with me? Because if I'm not bearing a faithful witness to Jesus, what is it that I think I'm doing? What is it that we think we're doing if we're not doing that? Because Jesus makes it clear that is a non-negotiable. We don't get to not bear witness to him. It is absolutely necessary. And yet I find myself acting like it is the thing I least, in the, least want to do in the world. And so that's where I find myself being Peter-like. And even if that's not an issue for you, there's probably some way in which you find yourself being tested at an unexpected moment. And maybe, you know, maybe it's acting selfishly. Maybe it's not showing up for someone who needs you. Maybe it's something else. Right, but, but these, these moments to be unfaithful to Jesus sneak up on us. Testing often comes 
at an unexpected moment and we can surprise ourselves with how unfaithful we actually are. And so the good news, if you do realize that you have been Peter-like as I have, uh, Peter does go on to be one of the key witnesses to Jesus. He goes on to be a martyr, a hero of the faith, a pillar of the church. In the book of Acts, we see him bearing a bold witness and suffering for it and doing it anyway. So there's hope because, you know, Peter was restored. We can be restored if we're being Peter-like. So that's the good news. Second person to talk about is Judas. Judas uh, lets people know how they can arrest Jesus when there's a good moment to do so. But once he sees that they're actually going to have Jesus killed, he has a crisis of conscience, which makes me wonder, well, what did you think they were going to do with him? So I don't know if it's that he didn't think they were going to kill him, they were just going to arrest him or shame him in some way, or if he did expect that, but then once he saw it, he couldn't stomach it, or if he uh, didn't think it through to the end and just wanted the money as quickly as he could get it. I don't know, it does, it's not clear, but in some way or other, he's in over his head now. He's done something and he's having that what have I done moment where my actions have somehow or other come to have a bigger impact than I imagined. My unfaithfulness has, has gotten bigger than I thought. And I don't have a great story that I, where I identify with that one, but I do think it's true that sometimes our, what seems like a small uh, compromise in our obedience to Jesus can, can actually turn out to be bigger than we thought. And that can happen too. Third, I want to say something about the chief priests. The chief priests, of course, are the people that run the temple. Um, Jesus has been butting heads with religious authorities throughout the gospel. And in uh, the 23rd chapter of Matthew, you may recall, he spends a lot of time criticizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and so on. And the, the chief priests would have been Pharisees and Sadducees, probably mostly Sadducees. And so he accuses them of several things, but often he accuses them of hypocrisy. And so uh, in 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 23 to 24, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. In other words, you avoid eating the smallest unclean animal, but you freely eat the largest unclean animal, which is a silly thing to do. We see the chief priests, uh, when they have this money back from Judas, they say it's not lawful to put this money into the temple treasury. And that sounds like they're saying this is contrary to the law of Moses, uh, which is sort of the, the rules by which you know, people want to obey God in this world and which God gave them to follow. Um, and they ought to follow the law of Moses, but this isn't actually something discussed in the law of Moses. This is something discussed, uh, it would seem, in the traditions that they have around the significance of the law of Moses. Uh, so in this time and place, um, it was recognized that the law of Moses does not tell you about everything you might want to know about. And if you've tried to follow Scripture in your life in a thorough way, you have noticed, it doesn't tell you about everything you'd like to know about, right? It doesn't say, there's, there's situations that arise that it does not directly comment on. And so it has been recognized for many, many centuries that there is an amount of interpretation that needs to happen to apply Scripture to your life. That's just how it works. You have your, your circumstances, your time and place, 
the specific questions that are not all addressed. And so, uh, and that was recognized in the first century as well. And so different Jewish groups had traditions about what it meant to follow the law of Moses. Uh, what does it mean to follow the Sabbath? What can you do? What can't you do? Stuff like that. And so this set of teachings is referred to as a halakha. A halakha is the uh, traditions you have about how to be obedient to the Torah. And where Jesus and the chief priests and other religious authorities butt heads, it's usually a matter of halakha. It's not that he's violating the law of Moses. Really, it's that he's violating their tradition about what the law of Moses means. And so that appears to be what's going on here. They have decided that their particular tradition says you can't put the blood money into the temple treasury. That's not right. So we have to do something else with it. What they do not seem terribly uncomfortable with is they're the ones who paid the blood money in the first place. Arguably a bigger deal. Right? They're straining out the gnat but swallowing the camel. Judas says he, yes, Judas says he has betrayed innocent blood and the chief priests say, what is that to us? For one thing, you're the ones he betrayed the innocent blood too. So this is kind of your issue as well, right? Kind of your issue as well. Um, plus, you're the priests and he's trying to atone for his sin. This is your department. This is what you do. This is your job. And yet they are unconcerned and unwilling to offer him any kind of recourse there. So there's hypocrisy is the point. Uh, they are not aware of the moral reprehensibility of their own actions. They're just looking down on this guy and, and so on. And so, uh, you know, we can look nastily at the chief priests, but I suggest that we could be fall, you know, easily fall into the same error. We can easily uh, elevate our understanding of Scripture to the level of Scripture itself and hold other people to that in a way where actually they might have it right and we might have it wrong. We can... Um, treat our traditions as non-negotiables. We can criticize someone else for a small violation when we are in some way deeply at odds with God and not realizing it. And we need to be careful. We can assume that the thing we think is right is in fact the right thing. And it sometimes turns out we're not the best judge of what's best. Right? Well, the right thing to do, the faithful thing to do, isn't always the obvious thing to do as religious people. So we need to be careful of being chief priest-like as well. So in these various ways, Jesus, well, we see people acting at odds with who they understand themselves to be. I suggest, even though it's not a point that's explicitly made, that our proximity to Jesus sometimes has a way of doing that, right? Jesus has a way of exposing who we actually are and where we are at odds with who we thought we are. We're maybe not as righteous, maybe not as faithful, maybe not as committed as we thought we were. Sometimes that happens. So... <clears throat> some takeaways for us. I think that the first, and it's fairly obvious, is that this is a reason to exercise humility. Uh, that means, you know, it doesn't mean thinking we're the worst person ever to live or something, but it does mean being realistic. We're not as faithful as we sometimes imagine. We may not be as great as we think. Uh, it also, that's going to imply not exercising strict judgment in a way where we look down on someone else for something immoral that they did if, you know, we it turns out might be capable of doing something just as heinous given the right situation. So we should be realistic about what we're capable of when we're looking at other people. And it means recognizing the need for God's grace, right? I mean, that's basic stuff. I don't think that's news to very many people here, but we are desperately in need of the grace of God. Jesus died for us so that we can have access to that. And so I think it's important to let that remain with us. There are circles in the church where people are very, they have a very hard time talking about sin anymore. 
because, you know, sin is, uh, brings shame and shame's the worst thing ever. And so we need to have a, you know, whatever. We need to see ourselves positively and blah, blah, blah. There's people that, that it's very hard to talk about sin uh, who, who say Jesus is their Lord. And yet I think there's just something about sin that we cannot drop. It's core. The grace of God in the face of our sin is essential. And so I think it's important that we are real about that and that we uh, work that into our practice as Christians. So confession, repentance, coming before God and saying, I've sinned, I'm guilty, I need your grace, I need you to forgive me, I believe that you will because Jesus died for me. Uh, Transform my heart so that I can more fully align myself with you where I see myself not being faithful is absolutely necessary. That should be a regular part of our devotion and Uh, it's a good thing to confess before our brothers and sisters as well. I think that's a really good practice. Have people pray for us, acknowledge our sin. Uh, And the last point I want to make is that we can expect that testing will come in unexpected ways. So uh, I like to imagine that if, you know, I'm out in public somewhere and ISIS just showed up and said they were going to, not that they would, but showed up and said, I'm going to chop your head off if you don't deny your faith. Like, I like to think I would say I'm a Christian and, and, be willing to die for Jesus. I don't know. I've never had that experience. I'd like to think I would. But that's probably not the way testing is going to come for most of us, right? It's probably not going to be that obvious. It's probably going to be subtle. It's probably going to be that random moment where you can make one decision or another, and one of them is what you kind of want to do, and the other is obviously the faithful thing. I want to do something unselfish, but I do something selfish instead, or what have you. Expect that testing will come. When, you're not, when you are not anticipating it, when you don't have time to psych yourself up for it, and behave accordingly. That could mean a lot of things, but I think it means, number one, caring about how we handle those moments where we just rather compromise and be done than be faithful or something like that. It may mean just making extra sure to abide in God, making sure to spend time in prayer, making sure to turn to the Lord frequently and say, help me to walk, you know, Holy Spirit, help me to walk in your way, something like that, recognizing that we will be tested when we're not necessarily expecting it. So what I want to do, I want us to take about two minutes. Uh, We don't need any music. We'll just be silent for just, it'll just be two minutes though, so it's not going to be on and on and on. And I want you to sort of come before the Lord and ask something to the effect of, you know, is there somewhere you want to point out that I'm at odds with you or at odds with who I think I am or something like that? Is there a way where you want to put your finger on something that you want to address today that maybe I'm not expecting? Ask the Lord to bring things to mind. Uh, In two minutes, I'll give you some instructions on what to do with that. So you don't need to pray this whole, you don't need to address it, just see what God is bringing to mind in the next couple of minutes, okay? And uh, I guess I'll say a quick prayer. Uh, Jesus, thank you for um, addressing our sin, our unfaithfulness as only you can, and for loving us and for giving us the opportunity to be like Peter and be restored. And so I pray for restoration today. I pray that you'd highlight things to us where we are not who we think we are, where we are not who we tell ourselves we are, that you want to address today. Holy Spirit, bring those things to mind and give us the grace to turn from those things toward you. Thank you, God. Amen.